New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. Welcome to New Species. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today I'm joined by Dr. Tom Giarla, an assistant professor of biology at Siena College in Albany, New York. He's here today to talk to us about his recent paper in the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society, in which he and his co-authors describe two new species of semi-aquatic mice from Africa. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for having me, Brian. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. I, I always enjoy getting some of the mammalogists on the show. Uh, they're charismatic types of creatures that most people can relate to fairly well. They're fuzzy, they're cute, things like that. And I assume these mice are all the same. Let's start right there. This is in a group of mice called the Murini. And what exactly is this group of mice? Just so people can understand like the group. Yeah. Um, I, I think they're charismatic, um, but I, I'm not sure if other people would consider murid rodents too charismatic. But I am here to convince you. Um, Muridae is the largest group of, it's the largest family of rodents. Um, it includes the very well-known like lab mouse and lab rat species. So Mus musculus is the mouse and Rattus nervegicus would be the rats, also like subway rats, right? Um, so it includes some extremely well-known human commensals that just get anywhere humans are, they are now present. But this family is native just to um, Africa, Europe, and Asia, <clears throat> and actually parts of Australia too, Northern Australia. But now they've been spread globally. At least some species have. And this, is, this isn't this is just a, a, a large family. This is the largest family of mammals, right? Yes, it's the largest family of mammals. And then within that family, there's some subfamilies. And the particular group I'm focusing on is actually the largest subfamily of mammals too. So there's just, there's a lot of rodents. Um, we've got a lot of rodent species and we're describing more and more um, with every passing year. So and by it's a lot, a, we're talking like 700 or more species, right? Just in the subfamily. Yes, that is correct. The subfamily Murinae has 700 plus species, most of which are in tropical Africa and um, tropical Asia. And your paper is specifically, just to narrow this down a little bit, has to do with semi-aquatic mice. And you've got two genera in which you're working. Why don't you tell us a little bit about, tell us what those genera are and then tell us what does it mean to be a semi-aquatic mouse? Yeah, so um, this paper is focused on colomies and nilopegamies. They're two genera that had been really neglected for quite some time. So most groups of rodents have received a little bit of attention from taxonomists and evolutionary biologists over the years. Colomies and nilopegamies had kind of been neglected for various reasons. They're kind of tough to catch. So, well, especially nilopegamies, as I'll explain in a minute. But colomies, there had been some smatterings of collections over the past few decades, a little bit of taxonomic work over the past century, but fairly little. Um, so it was sort of ripe for this sort of modern reanalysis where we integrate morphological data along with DNA data. And, you know, one of the reasons they're hard to catch is they are semi-aquatic, meaning that they are... Um, pretty good at inhabiting um, streamside habitats. So you're not going to be catching these too often out on a trail or in a forest. Well, they'll be in a forest, but by a stream or near a swamp. And it is kind of tough to get an animal in that area because you actually sometimes have to place 
the traps literally in the water or right next to the water. So I just think they're probably not uncommon animals in their forests. They're just not in the places where a mammalogist would typically put a trap. So you kind of need to know um, where to put it. So how do you normally trap these sorts of things? Like if you're in the field, what can, just tell us what a trap looks like. I know we have both live and and, and other types of trap. Yeah. I'll just leave it at that. Tell, tell us what, what you would be looking for. How, how would you be trying to trap just your typical mouse, and why doesn't that work in the aquatic environment? Yeah, a really typical way to do it would be you'd put out a, a Sherman trap, which is this little metal box. They're kind of like the – you can buy these if you if you don't want to kill a mouse that gets in your house, like these little have-a-heart traps, right? So you can always – they're just little boxes that have a, a trap door that um, – or it's a, it's a spring-loaded door that closes behind the animal once it enters. Yeah, they step on like a little pressure yep. plate and, and like Indiana Jones, the door flies shut it. behind them. So you need to have some sort of bait in there and you can – sort of depends on the type of species you're targeting, but usually a little peanut butter or oats. These mammals have – you know, most mammals have exceptionally well-developed senses of smell. So they're going to be able to detect just a single peanut or some oats in there and um, they'll be attracted to it. There's other types of traps too, like pitfall traps. You dig a – hole and put a bucket in and then you might build a whole drift fence. So this is how a lot of herpetologists capture um, uh, lizards. Salamanders and frogs and yep. like that. Yeah. So it also works for small mammals, especially insectivorous small mammals like shrews, which aren't even rodents, but um, I also work on shrews. But there are some insectivorous um, rodents, including colomies and nylopegamies, which are um, mostly eating aquatic insects, we think. Um, so that and you, so, you, so, you, go ahead. So, so obviously a pitfall won't work because you, you can't put a hole in the bottom of a lake no. without the thing swimming out, right? <laughs> Definitely not. Or the bottom of a stream, I should say, like the, the edge of a stream. Yep. And then there's also things like snap traps and the like, right, which is what your typical mouse trap looks like. Uh, and sometimes those are used for collection as well. And again, that water bit won't work well for a snap trap if you have to submerge it in any way, right? Because that water yeah. will slow down things. Um, yes. Yeah, so there, it's, it's pretty tough to do that. There are certain um, – Types of traps that instead of being a full metal box would have more of a mesh grid type sure. thing. Those can be semi-submerged, and I believe that's how a number of these have been captured. But often they're just um, – these semi-aquatic mice are trapped just right next to the stream. So like in that kind of rocky area near a stream. You can also put them in trees. You can put snap traps in trees. You can put um, sure. box traps in trees. Um if you want well, to that's get not where these things that you're talking about are typically found, right? They're 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 hanging out most of the water, as far as we know. But they right? do. So actually, what the the holotype of one of the new species we described was caught by a herpetologist. He's a co-author in this paper with a slingshot, which is actually a way that oh. yeah, uh, <laughs> it, it is a way a rubber band on a slingshot. Uh, it's a way that sometimes um, lizards are are captured, and he saw this animal actually scrambling around on low branches of a tree over a stream. So, you know, a lot of mammals do have this ability to, you know, from their perspective, they're little tiny things, right? Like a big rock and a tree trunk aren't that different. Um, so they do scramble around sometimes on low trees. We would never call this, these species I'm working on um, arboreal, but they, they're nearly scansorial or they, meaning they, they can sometimes climb on trees and sometimes be on the ground. Um, they're pretty adaptable, but it certainly seems where they hang out, where they spend most of their time, is streamside. They're they're um, sometimes called wading rats or wading mice because they they use their feet to sort of um, climb through the um, gravel on the side of the stream and um, kind of dip their whiskers in, looking sure. for food. Sure, and, and just so people have a clear understanding of all of this, these are not very large. One of them is is a little bit larger, right? But the the is a little is a little 
larger, but the the other ones are actually relatively small. Can you give us an idea how big they are, what kind of coloration they have, that sort of thing? Oh yeah, so they're um, they're pretty attractive little mice. I think they're they're cute. Um, they're about they're quite a bit. I'd say they're between a mouse and a rat. If you've if you've had mice in your house, you would certainly know what a, how big a mouse is. Pretty small rodent, and a rat. A couple you, inches probably without yeah, the tail, right? Yeah, a couple inches. Um, Colomies is kind of between a mouse and like a typical rat you might see if you're uh, you know in a city that has a subway, right? So that's a bigger animal, um, like eight or nine inches or so. If yeah, you're looking that, at good size ones. So somewhere right between there. So just sort of a smallish rat sized animal, very attractive, sort of um, tan brown. Um, on the backside and this um, white coloration on the belly. Excellent. And so they're, they're like a two-tone or bicolor, yep, bicolor. In, in some cases, right? Yep. All right. So what are these things doing ecologically? So so what, what are they doing out in the world? Yeah. And this is actually still a really interesting area of research. I would say in general, small mammals are relatively understudied compared to their diversity. So there's so many species of small mammals, and we know a lot about certain groups, like certain desert rodents and certain larger rodents like beavers, right? Um, but we don't know much about these. And and these are strange little guys, nylopegamies and colomies. Um, it's an unusual feeding mode. So they're, we're not really aware of other small mammals that do this. Actually, they're, they're, they may forage in a similar way to other... Um, some insectivorous species that aren't rodents, um, like um, they're called otter shrews. Um, but whatever the case, they're foraging um, on the banks of streams. They have these really long whiskers that they seem to drape over the surface of the water, and they can feel the vibrations of aquatic invertebrates usually that are living in the, the water, so larval, um, various larval species. They do sometimes eat fish and tadpoles. We know from one observational study but overall, I'd say we do not know a ton about it. They're nocturnal as most um, most rodents are um, nocturnal. So it's kind of difficult to study these, these animals. And again, they live in tropical Africa, which is a region of the world um, that hasn't had a, uh, as much behavioral ecologist attention as it deserves, given the, the really rich diversity of rodents that live there. But you, you do reference a study in there where they actually they, they captured some. Yeah. And they watched what they did. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I don't know how they, they captured them and they brought them back to their lab. These were, um, we dedicated our paper to um, Dieterlin, who is a German mammologist who, who died um, a few years ago um, and really set the stage for our work. Did some of the more recent taxon- taxonomic work on this group. And also he caught a lot of these animals in the 70s and 80s. And he brought at least one back to his lab in Germany and observed it. Um, and he, I think I think it survived for several months to a year or so. Um, and yeah, he kept it in a, in a tank and gave it sort of a shallow uh, area to wade in. And it readily did that. He would feed it tadpoles and guppies and um, worms. And this animal did seem to enjoy eating all sorts of different things. Um, they're pretty, unlike, you know, most rodents are um, herbivores. So they're mostly eating seeds and plant material. Um, but there's a decent set of rodents that are eating animals, um, and colomies and nylopegamies appear to be strongly carnivorous or insectivorous. Yeah, and, and even in one of the studies, that, or at least one of the observations early in, in these, you reference in the paper, somebody had said the contents of the stomach smelled fishy. I know, this is that beautiful early, sometimes you read these older yeah. <laughs> papers and they're, they're a little more 
they describe these little elements of natural history that we don't always get sometimes in our um, modern scientific papers. But I, I like I like reading these older ones. But yes, that was from the original description of um, nilopegamies by Osgood, who was working trapped the one and only specimen we have of this entire genus um, from a stream in Ethiopia and um, was never observed alive. And they did dissect the animal. And I apparently looked at the stomach contents, which contents which smelled fishy, um, which is not too surprising. This nilopegamies um, is a little bit bigger than colomies. So it's not surprising that it may be, um, and it's more aquatic, it seems. It's still semi-aquatic, but it has slightly more aquatic type features. So glossier fur, for example, bigger feet. It seems a little bit more adept at swimming and it very well may eat um, fish as a big part of its diet. If it's still alive, it, that, that genus actually may be extinct. Yeah, you said there's only one known specimen. That's the one that was collected in 1924, is that yeah, correct? In the, yeah, 1920s. And um, it's actually among, it's probably, I'm trying to think if, I don't think there's a single other mammalian genus that is known from only one specimen. There are uh, many other mammalian species that are known from a single specimen, but I believe this is the only one, or among maybe one or two, um, where the entire genus is represented by just one species, sorry, one specimen. Um, yeah, one specimen in the single species that's yeah, in the entire genus, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and, you know, it was put in this genus because it's fairly distinct. I mean, it looks somewhat similar to Colomis. Um, in fact, someone in the um, Dieterland did, uh, this person who did the taxonomy did actually join got rid of the name Nilopegamies in the 80s. Um, the weave resu- uh, It was resuscitated in the 90s um, after a more careful uh, morphological analysis. And then our results also confirmed that it is indeed pretty distinctive branch on the evolutionary tree. And we agree right, that it so, should be its own genus. Yeah, so, so let's talk a little bit about your study specifically. You're combining both morphological data. So in other words, you're, you're actually looking at the actual specimens. You're in, including a lot of the skeleton. That's one of the main things that's looked at for these, right? That's that's the main features you're looking at? Yeah. Of course, you look at some of the the the, the skin and that sort of thing. When, I'm, I don't think most people understand when you collect a mouse or a rat and you put it into a museum, how, how let's start there. What is that process like? Let, tell me like what it takes to voucher a specimen. In other words, you put one in a museum so somebody could find it later. Yeah. What do you do? You go out and you find a mouse and you're like, I want to put this in a museum. What do you have to do to it briefly? So um, there's various things you can do. Um, you can actually keep it as a, you can store it in alcohol. If you want to store the whole specimen, you may take a tissue out and then store it. And that would be a fluid preserved specimen just sort of the standard for um, various groups of vertebrates like lizards and, and fish and is sometimes quite useful because we don't want to lose all that soft anatomy. There's a lot of interest now in studying stomach contents and gut morphology, like that sort of stuff. But by far the most common way is to do a traditional um, museum study skin. So you would um, remove the um, everything except the skin um, and stuff it as a little taxidermied um, mouse. And then you would from the carcass that you'd have left over, you would take remove the head and then um, feed the head to a domestic beetle colony so that the colony would um, eat away all the parts. So that's right. the most... Domestic beetles are like these little carnivorous things. Yeah. Like you, you put them in and they'll just clean things off, right? Yeah. So most museums have a um, domestic beetle colony where you can clean skeletons. You may also put the entire carcass in there if you want to keep all the skeletal remains. But I'd say it's pretty common to have a... Um, a, a mouse specimen that's represented by a stuffed study skin and a skull, and that's it. So you lose, and then a tissue. So th- certainly these days, in the 90s, people started doing this. You would take a tissue sample and store that 
in um, in the freezer. And that allows right. So what do we have for work. nylogymus? Uh, what, what all do we have for that? Nylopegamies, we just have a... Or, oh, I'm sorry, nyl- yeah, nylopegamies, sorry. We, we have a um, stuffed skin and a skull. And, and so that, no that's tissues. all that there is. That, but that was that was standard. That was industry standard at the time, right? Of course. Yeah. You know, it's efficient. You have to do. You often do the taxidermy in the field, so you don't have a lot of room to be taking a bunch of carcasses back with you. Um, sure. So it's a logistics issue. Yeah, and, and and these are not exactly found in like easy to get to places, right? As I understand it, based on the paper. So some of your new species are from West Africa, around Liberia and Guinea. Guinea. This particular genus, the one we're talking about where there's a single specimen, is all the way on the other side of the continent in northern Africa and in Ethiopia. And then you have another species that's right from the heart of Africa, right stuck in the middle, Central Africa, and that's Democratic Republic of Congo. Yep. Let's talk about this this individual one, though, because you did something interesting. I've had a lot of people on the podcast before talk about being able to do morphological stuff. You look at the anatomy. Right. So in this case, you're looking at the skull, you're looking at the, the what we call the pelage, the, the skin and the, the fur and that sort of thing. Right. Yep. And then a lot of people also do the molecular work where they're actually collecting a DNA sample and getting some tissue from it. Most of the time they're doing that with fresh stuff. This is a little different. You had one specimen collected roughly 100 years ago. So what did you have to do here? And I will say I was stunned that this worked the first time I did it. I was like, you know. The heavens parted and the light shone down upon me. It was, I could not believe it. Yes. <laughs> it was, you know, I was, I'm a relatively new professor here at uh, Siena College. Like, I got to get this project going. Hopefully it works. I just couldn't believe that it worked this first time. So um, nylopegamy is known for this one specimen. And, and sometimes on these old specimens, even some new ones, the uh, person who prepared it left some tissue, sometimes on the inside of the skull. And there's often usable DNA in that tissue that has been dried on the inside of the skull, you know, and sitting in a museum shelf for 100 years. So that's that's what the case was here. Um, so my um, collaborator, Julian, went out and, and this is a specimen that's been housed at the Field Museum in Chicago. And he carefully pulled off little pieces of tissue from the inside of the skull. And, and you know, I had done this sort of work before um, and I've done quite a bit since. But this was a good proof of concept. This was quite old. Um, you have to clean that little piece of tissue. So you wash it to make sure that anything that might have drifted on it, because you could get contaminant DNA in there. We don't expect there to be much good DNA. DNA degrades. It gets sort of um, various biochemical processes. Bacteria might sort of start breaking it apart. There's all these just chemical processes that happen. And just time. Yeah, time. Just um, degradation, right? Um, but museums keep things kind of dry, which is good. So we have these dried pieces. So then I um, had to design some molecular probes, these primers, to, to pull up little tiny pieces of DNA to amplify little pieces at a time, had to sequence those little pieces, and then put them all together. And it worked. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> so it worked <laughs> quite beautifully. And then, you know, the, the nice thing was it totally confirmed our hypothesis, which was that nylopegamese was closely related to colomies. Um, but it was clearly distinct at the same time too. So it fit on this, like pretty much exactly where we thought, but we didn't know it could have gone somewhere totally different. Um, rodents compared to, um, other groups of mammals, um, are fairly morphologically conserved. So you do get these crazy examples of sometimes convergence. We have things that kind of look similar that are actually not closely related. So here was the opposite. We had things that kind of look similar and in fact, they are closely related. So that was nice. Yeah, and you're able to uphold that it's a it's own genus, not just using the morphological data, but actually being able to pull in the DNA, yep. put it on like a little branch of the tree of life, and say this has its own little branch. 
that sits right next to this other branch where all of these other species are that we're looking at, right? Right. How, so that's how you help decide that these are new species, or at least that this was a zone genus. Let's talk more specifically then about the other genus, the one that was that's found uh, broadly throughout a large portion of Central and West Africa, and, and even going, I guess, over into East Africa yeah. a little oh, bit, right? I would just saw equitorial Africa, yes, though they even get okay. into Angola. So th- this is a very, very widely distributed genus, which was the other thing when we looked at this, like, this is crazy that no one has done a like a integrative sort of taxonomic analysis. because yeah, they, they thought it was all one right. species, one, right? It's implausible to have a species, a single species like this, really, with such a wide distribution. So we knew, we strongly suspected... P- particularly in a tropical area. Yes. Like in North America, across the plains, that's not right. necessarily unusual. But in the tropics, yes. that's extremely unusual. Yes. So we, we suspected there would be some undiscovered species in this group. Yeah, and, and tell us a little bit about that. So how do we decide that? So we, um, we did a careful morphological analysis of... Um, all these different specimens. We had um, dozens of specimens sampled across their known range. And then we also had... Gen- and these are recent ones, not like 100-year-old specimens, a right? Mixture, You're actually getting... A mixture of them. Some are oh, recent. Okay. We had, yeah, we saw everything from the 1920s to, um, you know, 2017. So we had samples from, from all over. Um, and that's the great thing about museums. We really need to support our, fund our museums because they're housing these um, collections for this sort of work. And we don't even know how they're going to be used hundred years from now, right? So the more we collect, the better. Yeah, because your, your original collector of that other genus had no idea that you were going to need DNA from it. Oh, absolutely. Right. right? Um, yeah. So how do we know that it's a, that these are distinct species? Well, for small mammals, it's often somewhat subtle characteristics, especially when we're talking about within a single genus. So we have to morphologically do some statistical analyses. So most um, most of this work was um, it was these specimens were measured by Julian Curvis Peterhans, who's the senior author on the paper, um, the, the the last author, um, and really helped spearhead a, a lot of this. And he went through and very carefully measured various dimensions of the skull, especially skulls are highly diagnostic for mammals. Teeth also, um, you get subtle differences that evolve as these animals have um, sort of evolved on their separate lineages. And um, most of the characters that we look at here are um, fairly subtle skull characters. The other thing we have, of course, is genetics. And then to a lesser extent, we think about geography. Like, for example, the new, one of the new species we described, Colomies wallagizi from Liberia and Guinea, occurs like hundreds of kilometers from any other known population of Colomies. So it's pretty obviously isolated, like geographically, which gives us a little bit extra like we already it already also looks and looks different and has um, genetic differences, but that's sort of just the the nail in the. And coffin. it even pops out of its own little leaf on the tree of life, right? It yep. just came out just pretty clear, as I recall from looking at your 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 phylogeny, your tree there. It had its nice own little blink. Yep. There it is. That thing is definitely different. Yep. The names of these, particularly your two new species. So we started with one species that looked like it had this broad distribution, right? And that right. was Gosling eye. Yep. The group of you were looking at this, and I know that you you said you were kind of brought in a little bit later when you started getting into the molecular stuff. So obviously somebody was questioning this. Tell us the story of how we're leading into realizing that this is probably not one species and then arriving at, no, this is clearly not one species. Yeah, you know, I mean, and this goes way before me when it was actually in the 90s when um, Chris Kofron and this this herpetology team were in West Africa and they caught what is now Colomies Wallagizi, and that was put into the um, mammal collection at the American Museum of Natural History and had a little note by it. I saw this note and it's like, new species, question mark, because it occurred, you know, hundreds of kilometers from 
um, any other thing. So it had long been suspected. And then, um, and that, so we sort of knew that that one was almost certainly going to be a, a new species. Um, and I was notified by that by my collaborators, um, Terry Demos and Julian Kerberspeederhands and Reiner Hutterer. Um, and Terry and Julian had been doing tons of work in East Africa as well, especially in the Albertine Rift. So that area near Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda, Kenya, um, they had been collecting for um, over a decade in that region, but collecting Colomies. And they're like, hey, let's let's think about working on this group because we just, based on sort of this broad distribution, we, we have some strong suspicions um, that there's some undiscovered species here. So, you know, we went in, not quite sure. I mean, it was really piecemeal process getting samples over a many year period because we have to request them from museums and we were very, very appreciative of museums that sent us these requests. I got not just the Nilopegamies, um, ancient DNA, there were other samples from the 20s and 30s and 40s that I also sampled from Central DRC um, and uh, Cameroon um, to just sort of bolster our geographic sampling. Um, and then... And you were able then to take all of that and then use the morphological data or the way that these things look, like the shapes of the skulls and all that, and the DNA and say, yes. Yes. it was. These are definitely new. It was integrative, as we call it. Integrative t- taxonomy. So this sort of it's not so new anymore the past 20, 30 years, you know, people doing both morphological analysis and um, sort of a genetic analysis, a holistic view. Cause I, you know, um, either can be sufficient, but in, um, in these kind of cases where you've got species that are pretty similar, um, it's very helpful to have both. And it's certainly the, the goal for most, most taxonomists. So we went from one species to minimally four, right? In your paper, for for this one genus, yes. right? Uh, two of them were considered subspecies. In other words, people recognized they were a little bit different looking, but they weren't sure they were a new species necessarily. So they, you were able to elevate two of them to new species. But then you had two new species, one of them being from Liberia and, and Guinea area on, on West Africa, the other one being from Democratic Republic of Congo. Really interesting names. Most of the time when we talk about a patronym, you're naming it after a person or a place. We don't really think much of it, but these have long paragraphs describing them. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about each of these two new species and how they got their name? Yeah, and, you know, there's an angle for both of them. Um, the, the, the first one is our West African species from Liberia and Guinea, and that's Colomis Wolagizi, which is from the Wolagizi Mountains. And th- these forests are just absolutely under threat. So West Africa is just one of these just cradles of biodiversity in Africa, um, Obviously, a place, population yes, explosion. Yeah, you know, there's lots of people that live there. Um, so, and there's a lot of also mining interests, and unfortunately, quite a bit of habitat destruction going on. Um, and um, you know, as we name new species, it does provide you know some, hopefully, further boost some information for governments to um, realize what they have, um, what they have there. So, um, Colomies Wolgizi, we named in honor of this forest, which. Um, we believe deserves some additional protection so that it is not um, encroached upon, especially by um, mining interests and uh, other um, sort of big, big corporations that are trying to extract resources from these just pristine forests that are being really degraded and still hold so many species. So that's where we'll... And how about your other species then? The the one from Democratic Republic of Congo, right there in Central Africa. That's Colomis Lumumbai, and it's named after um, Patrice Lumumba, who is the was the first prime minister of the Democratic Republic of the Congo immediately after 
Um, they gained independence from Belgium, um, but a very sad story. Uh, um, Lumumba may be known to your listeners. He's um, was assassinated um, with the help of um, Katangan um, separatists, so people that were trying to not have this whole uh, country exist, and also the former Belgian um, colonialists. So I'm no historian, but it, it is a pretty fascinating um, and sad story, um, and he is sort of an inspirational figure for um, a lot of people who who think about colonialism in Africa. And um, it's just a, a tragic story because he died quite young. He was very young when he was elected prime minister, and was only prime and he was only prime minister for a few months before he yes, was assassinated, yeah. right? Um, so you know, I encourage your listeners to to read up about Patrice Lumumba because pretty pretty interesting person. Yeah, and, and it's nice when you you. You get to name a new species after somebody who has some sort of historical significance in that way. Obviously, when we name them after people, we always try to put some sort of significance to it. But in this particular case, you're calling back to colonialism and and going back almost a century for that name so that you can make sure that people don't forget. This is what happens when we have these sorts of issues. Let us not forget because, you know, we face a lot of these same issues today in various other forms. Yeah, it's been great having you on the podcast. I appreciate your time. I know that you have a lot to happen, especially here at the end of the, the semester, there's a lot going on. So I really want to thank you for coming onto the podcast and taking the time to tell us a lot about these semi-aquatic mice from Western and Central Africa. My, thank you, Tom. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Once again, Tom Giarla's paper is in the May issue of the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society. The title of the paper is Integrative Taxonomy and Phylogeography of Colimus and Nilopegamus, Semi-Aquatic Mice of Africa, with descriptions of two new species. See the episode details for a link to his paper. And to learn more about Tom, follow him on Twitter, at Tom Giarla. That's at T-O-M-G-I-A-R-L-A. And check out the episode notes for even more information, including his website. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash New Species Podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash New Species Podcast. <laughs>